Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways, which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Look, I'm going to uh, shirt front, Mr I Putin. am a fighter and not a fighter. I don't think, I know. And I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. G'day there, Mark Kenny here with Democracy Sausage from the Australian National University. Comes to you each week. As you know, I'm with the Australian Studies Institute at ANU and the School of Politics and International Relations. Thank you for all your constructive feedback and good ideas and enthusiasm that we get on our email uh, address. Uh, you may not know this, but Democracy Sausage actually has some quite dedicated listeners around the world in places like London, Berlin. Hi there, Nicole. New York, Texas, D.C., lots of places actually. Some of these no doubt are expats abroad, others academics, diplomats, journalists trying to understand Australia, which is, I guess, the project of this podcast. Hopefully this week's fair is a very useful mix in that regard of both the domestic and the international. My guest is Bob Carr, author, academic, former foreign minister, labour intellectual, humanitarian, humanitarian I should say, Professor Bob Carr, welcome to Democracy Sausage at last. A great honour to be on Democracy Sausage. Thanks for inviting me, Mark. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Um, and it's an interesting time, actually, isn't it? Because um, there's, there's, a, there's some big things happening, which we'll get to. And of course, this week is also the week in which Labor is having its national conference. That doesn't come around, I think, what comes around every three years or so. And um, uh, I think this is the first live one, uh, because there was one that fell during the, the COVID period. Yeah. or in-person one, I should say. Uh, and, of course, they're always more interesting when Labor is in office than when Labor is in opposition, which the statistics show is more often than not. Um, I remember, as you will, when Bob Hawke was Prime Minister and having to deal with these sorts of things and he had to deal with some pretty uncomfortable um, uh, debates that would come up on on, on nuclear questions and uh, and other things, and sometimes at the head of those uh, those prickly discussions was a young firebrand called Anthony Albanese, who now finds himself in the position that Bob Hawke was and probably defending government policy or, 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 or what you might say is a more conservative or cautious approach to policy than some within his party uh, would like to see. So it's going to be fascinating to to watch that whole process and to see the way that, uh, that Labor navigates this. One of those questions, of course, and some of those things uh, have been handled with a degree of uh, pre-conference messaging, and one of those things, of course, is the intractable problem of the Palestinian question or the Israel-Palestinian question. Labor will revert to the language uh, used before uh, to describe the West Bank and Gaza as occupied Palestinian territory and to the uh, Israeli settlements uh, in the uh, West Bank and uh, the occupied territory uh, as illegal. Bob, on this Palestinian question, it all it all hinges on 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 language, on practice, on definitions. Um, the official policy that Australia supports, that uh, that a number of countries support, even that technically Israel supports, is the two-state solution. I wonder if I could just ask you to just unpack that a little bit, uh, what it means and, and where it's up to. Yeah, well, it's simple. It means two states for two people, uh, living side by side, recognising the boundaries, uh, living at peace. It's not a huge step. The world wants that. Israel, at least formally, has subscribed to it, uh, and the Palestinians have made a transition to that position. They did so 30 years ago. And this, this area of conflict 
can become with European and American financial support flowing in to, to Palestine to give it a modern economy. Um, this can become a, a model for much of Africa, um, looking, looking at the, the way to resolve longstanding conflicts. Um, that's the hope of peace. That's the dream of peace. And a two-state solution is what the world has said is our, our diplomatic goal. I was listening to a, a song by the Cranberries the other day in relation to the Irish question and um, you know, the song Zombie, where it talks about a, a kind of a mindset of you know continual conflict. Um, and there are people on both sides of this conflict who live in that state and who seem to be making no progress, don't even conceive really of any progress in this regard. And Israelis themselves... Um, legitimately uh, make the point that they live in a situation where their security is threatened, particularly by Hamas in terms of, you know, rockets from Gaza and so forth. Uh, but nonetheless, um, uh, there are there are people on both sides of, of these borders that, uh, as you say, are committed to the two-state solution as well. Why is this pro process just so intractable? What, I mean, is it is it is is it that the that in some sense the the US has enabled it? Um, uh, US is committed to the two state solution as well, but but in a sense, um, it, there's no sanction that seems to apply to Israel for its practice of um, uh, you know creeping annexation in the West Bank. Yeah, that is the essence of it. Uh, as an American brokered peace process. But America cannot deliver any sanction. For example, the removal of um, the huge US military aid that flows to Israel, something that uh, uh, Bernie Sanders recently addressed. Why should a state that's so militarily strong as one of the best air forces in the world, um, a somewhat indifferently performing um, army, I've got to say, but military, militarily formidable as it's got to be to attend to its own security needs, worthy of, of uncritical US military aid. The fact is, when, when US negotiators have reached close, have got close to both sides signing off on a two-state solution, um, the talks have fallen through. This has been characteristic right through the two terms of George W. Bush's presidency have fallen through because, in essence, America can't force the Israelis to stop spreading settlements. There are always promises made about that, but the settlement, the process of settlement expansion has been unceasing, and as Palestinians and other critics of, uh, of Israel say, it is, it is a creeping annexation through the spread, the spread of, uh, of settlement blocks going up every year. Um, I think, in theory, you need another sponsor for these talks, but Israel, very strong militarily, can stand to one side and say, this strategy works for us, no one sanctions us, we're entitled to go on spreading, uh, lifting the, the, the Jewish population on the occupied Palestinian territories. One of the uh, justifications for all of the support for Israel has been the argument that it is the only democracy in the area, that it's a liberal democracy. That, that, that's, that's a hard argument to make right at the moment, isn't it? And if you're looking at a, a greater Israel, such as the, uh, every member of the, the Netanyahu cabinet is committed to, then you're looking at conditions in the occupied uh, Palestinian land that are inherently that are inherently undemocratic, deeply undemocratic, while Israelis demonstrate to continue judicial oversight of their, uh, their, constitute, their, 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 their uh, de facto constitution. They have a formal constitution. Um, Palestinians could only dream that they'd be able to take a case before a judge. They cannot do that. The most they get is uh, a hearing before a, a military tribunal. Some Palestinians as young as 12 have been dragged before military tribunals. Democracy does not exist. Um, if it did exist in this greater Israel, um, which is the target of the, uh, the settlers and the nationalists and the theocrats um, that, that comprise this current Israeli government, then all the, all the people of the West Bank, regardless of race, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of religion, 
would get a vote in national elections. Yes, well, and and instead we see this this government that is, as you've described it, the the most extreme nationalist right wing religiously based uh, government in Israel's history. Uh, we've got very prominent members of that uh, that cabinet, people like Itamar Ben Gavir, the security minister, um, uh, you know, extremely militant about uh, Israel's expansion, about arming um, the. Um, uh, the settlers in the uh, in the West Bank in the occupied territories. There, um, you've got uh, Bezalel uh, Smotrich, uh, who's the finance minister. He's actually been on record as saying there is no such thing as a Palestinian nation. There is no Palestinian history. There is no Palestinian language, which is remarkably similar to the sort of thing that Vladimir Putin has said about Ukraine. You know that it's not a real country. Um, it's extraordinary when when you think about the level of of um, sort of support, unquestioning support in a way that that comes from Western countries, and Australia has been part of this to a degree as well. Notwithstanding the the change in language we talked about earlier, but you know Australia has abstained from votes um, uh, sanctioning Israel or forcing it in onto a onto a, uh, a, a, a a stronger peace path in the past. Uh, so. I guess what that comes to, and you, you referred to this before in terms of the US's uh, reluctance to genuinely sanction Israel, um, it's a case here in this country, but even more so in the US, that the Israel lobby has extre- you know, a lot of domestic power, doesn't it? Yes, for over 30 years, the Israel lobby in the US has operated on the basis that if any member of Congress, any member of Congress, dare speak up in criticism of Israel or in support of the Palestinians, uh, they will be eliminated in the next uh, primary race because whoever their opponent is will receive huge funding designed to take out the congressperson who dares to raise a criticism of Israel. Now, that's been that's been something I, as a, uh, when I was a arrested on friend of Israel, was exposed to. I, I encountered uh, the American Jewish lobby boasting about its success at this tactic. Um, but that means effectively a deadlock in U.S. policymaking, an inability of the U.S. to exert influence on a nationalist Israel that says, look, we're going to get away with this. This is a creeping annexation and it's working for us. Yes, um, it's it certainly is. I wonder the extent to which that can change or whether you see there any any prospect for this changing because... There have been other uh, intractable problems that uh, that we've seen. In my life, I've seen apartheid South Africa dismantled. The Soviet communism has been dismantled. The wall came down. Um, there's been, you know, uh, the, the the end of uh, sectarian violence in Northern Ireland, if not the complete resolution of tensions there. We've seen the creation of Timor-Leste, one of the newest countries in the world and a democracy um, very close to Australia. Problems that uh, seemed intractable for a long time have been dealt with, but this one, on the other hand, uh, just seems to uh, just to defy that. And uh, one wonders whether people are prepared, including people who are advocating uh, a completely inflexible stance here on both sides, are prepared to live and die, live their entire lives in this state of, 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 of conflict, having made no progress. Yeah, the force of Israeli nationalism and... Uh and uh, religious, hyper-religiosity hyper runs very strong. And they see the Palestinians, take old Pearson's words, as an unloved people mm. um, without allies who would, would do anything serious in their defence. Um, even the Arab states have appeared to let them down. What are the dynamics here that might lead to a different power balance. One, uh, one, one is the demographic change in Israel, Israel gradually becoming um, a theocratic state, a, a theocracy. The world will see starkly, um, even starker than now, what th- this intensely nationalist and religious Israel represents. And it will lose the support of uh, young Jewish Americans, for example, a process that's already started. And and, and, and very much started inside Israel as well. Yeah, um, but I think I, th- I think given the demographic shift to the religious, the fundamentally religious in Israel, um, you'll see a big immigration 
from Israel, there are signs of that already, into, into uh, freer jurisdictions. Um, these, are, these are demographic changes. Um, the fact is a single entity embracing the concept of a greater Israel incorporates Arab people, Palestinians, who are never going to be granted civic equality with Jews. And that's precisely the prescription that, that uh, ironclad hardliners in Israel have got. Um, a greater Israel with the Palestinian territories subject to annexation, but no equality for the people of Palestinian descent. Yes, yeah, so these are people who are living in uh, in in Israel itself, uh, not in the occupied territories, in Israel itself, who are Arabs, who are um, uh, understand, who are not Jews, and there are you know there are people in um, powerful people in in Israel who believe that Israel is under threat in that sense, and that it needs to assert its Jewishness. This is that trend towards the theocratic state, as you describe it. Um, it's a uh, it's a situation that is creating enormous tensions. And as we see, we've seen, I think it's about 31 weeks now of, 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 of uh, protests as the, as the nationalist, religiously inclined government uh, seeks to weaken the Supreme Court and remove protections that the people have, the Supreme Court's ability to review unreasonable laws passed by the government. Um, it, it's a situation that's sort of explosive internally as well, isn't it? Yes, but of course, about those demonstrations, one has to say that there is nothing in them for the occupied Palestinians. The Israelis of a, a liberal or progressive or democratic disposition who are out there in the streets um, uh, declaiming against this, this uh, extreme right government aren't, with any placard or poster, making a case for a Palestinian state. They're not making a case for Palestinian uh, uh, self-government. Um, and if you're a Palestinian, you'd say, well, look, you're demonstrating to have continued judicial review of the laws of your Knesset, but we've got no judicial review in the occupied West Bank. The most we can expect, as I said a moment ago, is, is uh, a quick, um, uh, a brisk hearing before a military tribunal. Mm. So there's nothing in it for the Palestinians. Uh, the Palestinians could well think, if I were a Palestinian living in uh, in uh, in a camp or uh, harassed in one of the villages or cities on the West Bank, I'd be thinking, well, that's fine for you, but in your self-centeredness, can you spare a thought for the Palestinians who live without a hint of these rights that you're demonstrating so passionately to have entrenched in Israel? We live without those rights, without a hint of those rights. Well, I think that's a fair point, although uh, wouldn't it be also fair to say that uh, these are people who remember the aspirations of the early Israeli state, the liberal democratic aspirations, in some ways quite progressive, a number of, uh, you know, a number of factors weren't in terms of the treatment and the dispossession of Arabs from that territory and, and uh, the creation of refugees and uh, a number of military actions that have taken place. But nonetheless... Um, uh, there are many aspects of uh, the early Israeli state that were quite sort of utopian and and um, and progressive, and these things are under attack. And to the extent to which there is any prospect of getting back to that possible two-state solution, to a peaceful coexistence, to the creation of a legitimate and fully recognised Palestinian state, to the extent that that is possible, it must surely be more likely under an Israel that gets back to uh, to the international rules-based order, to uh, to liberal democratic principles, to questions of to, you know to some sort of mentality about social justice and and peace in the longer run. Yeah, although there's a sense in which this is a, a case study in how, um, in the words of King Lear, the worst is not. If I can say this is the worst. In other words, if you think this is bad. As it gets, and it must improve from this point, you're likely to be surprised. It will continue to get worse still. And I think the demographic shift in Israel means that the nationalists, the settlers, the, uh, the theocrats is going to become stronger. 
Yeah. Now, I should just say before we go to a break that uh, you you have a record as being quite a strong supporter of Israel. That's correct, isn't it? You were one of the originating yeah. members of- uh, yeah, I, set, I, I set up something called uh, Labor Friends of Israel in 1977 when I was a young employee of the, the Labor Council of New South Wales, the trade union movement. And I, I got Bob Hawke along to a meeting in a little room of the trades hall to launch it. I, uh, I bought a few- uh, Few flagons of uh, cheap wine, and uh, Hawke, as president of the ACTU, staggered in. He'd he'd had a, bit <laughs> had of, a few a bit flagons of wine, before uh, that earlier earlier that day. <laughs> yes, um, better quality than what I my budget could could allow. And he gave a very emotional speech, and we were locked into his view of this thing, identifying with Israel, which we saw as a social democracy, not knowing a thing. I've got to say, by way of self criticism, about the Palestinian narrative not knowing those things that Israeli historians themselves quite gravely have pointed out about the Nakba, the dispossession mm. of yes. 1948. That wasn't on the record then, and we overlooked completely the Palestinian story. And that's right. And when we hear things like the military action, the extraordinary military action that was taken by the Israeli Defence Force in Jenin uh, quite recently, uh, targeting terrorists uh, there, um, and there are, of course, collateral uh, casualties associated with it. This was in one of the refugee camps. And I think very few people kind of interrogate that point, think beyond it. Why would there be a thing called a refugee camp made of you know, more or less permanent buildings in these uh, Palestinian towns and cities? And it's because of people who are permanently dispossessed from their land. They are refugees. Yes, we've got to recognise that disposition. Um, it may not be comfortable for people who uh, identify with the uh, the great myth of Israel, the, the Exodus narrative, but um, it is confronting reality to say there's of the population of Gaza, for example, so a place that's been described as the world's uh, biggest outdoor refugee camp. The conditions savage, terrible. Um, not There's made no any better one. by Hamas, though. I mean, let's be but, let's and, be frank. And, I mean, this is this is not a liberal act. democracy. No, no one would pretend for a moment it is, and one's got to condemn not only Hamas but the people to the left of Hamas, who even when Hamas is sedated, fire rockets into Israel. Um, so that's that 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 can be restated. But just bear in mind that there is no one in the population of Gaza who is a native of Gaza that every one of the Palestinian families there has metaphorically or in reality a key to a house back in what is now Israel. They were dispossessed. They were moved on by what Israeli historians themselves have described in documentary detail as massacres. And the threat of those massacres getting closer to a village, getting closer to a farm, closer to uh, Palestinian houses in a city, led to a great fleeing to the borders, into Jordan, into Lebanon, and the population of Gaza um, are people who were dispossessed in this fashion. The despair, the despair that brings them to cast a vote for Hamas is a, self de a self-defeating thing. And um, we've got to commit ourselves. We've got to commit ourselves to offering, offering them the hope of a Palestinian state with which Hamas can be linked, with, with which um, Gaza can be linked, and in which the appeal of Hamas fades because nationhood has been realised by peaceful means. That's the way to defeat the allure of the revolutionary rhetoric that Hamas mobilises. Yes. Now, we're going to have to move on and, and go to a break, but just before we do, the... the um uh, the the point about statehood, uh, Palestine is recognised as a state uh, by the UN. It doesn't have full UN participating membership. It's more like the Holy See, so it has sort of observational status at the UN. Uh, a, a number of countries uh, recognise it as a state. The definitions of what a state is are not completely settled, but one of them is that uh, it has a territory and a people um, that, that permanently live in that, permanently live in that territory and um, something approximating a government. Now, you couldn't say that necessarily about the entirety of the West Bank and Gaza together because they're governed by two different 
interests, two different political authorities, the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank and Hamas in Gaza, and they don't get along and they haven't got along for a long time. That needs to change as well, doesn't it? I think there's some moves yeah. towards some sort of reconciliation at the moment, but that will need to change. Yeah, um, Gareth Evans addressed this question of, in his recent speech, um, which is a big contribution to this debate. He made it clear that the Palestinian Authority, um, the Palestinian people, meet all the tests of statehood and there's no legal barrier to recognising them as a state, as the majority of the world's nations do, and of the Europeans, Sweden and, and the Vatican uh, manage. I, I think that is the next step. Um, and I think with, with shifting European opinion towards recognition of a, a Palestinian state, um, the, the strongest case, the strongest dynamic, the strongest shift is the behaviour of Israel itself. There's going to be a point where Europeans and uh, like-minded say, um, well, what policy tool have we got to enhance, to, to resuscitate, to salvage the two-state solution? The only policy tool we've got is to recognise um, this government currently in Ramallah, um, but its capital, East Jerusalem, as a state. Let's take a break there and be back in a moment. We'll talk about something less thorny like perhaps AUKUS and, uh, and, and nuclear questions, perhaps even uh, uh, the Assange problem. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When the wind veered, the smoke was driven backwards, revealing a most amazing scene. Standing columns of fire. To Be Continued is a new podcast that explores the rich world of lost literary fiction from Australia's past. It helps you to understand the way in which knowledge is kind of not something that's out there waiting to be discovered, but it's something that you create. To Be Continued is brought to you by the Australian National University and is available now on your favourite podcast app. Welcome back. I'm talking with Bob Carr, Labor Luminary author. Um, his book, Run for Your Life, a memoir, was released in 2018, one of several books he's written. Uh, a fantastic read too, uh, highly regarded uh, among memoirs for, for its readability and uh, it's a very engaging piece, um, Bob. So I should say congratulations on that, uh, albeit that it's a few years old now, but uh, really does stand out as one of the, um, the, uh, the better political memoirs. Uh, to be sure. Now, one of the other big thorny questions at Labor's conference is the AUKUS deal, uh, the deal that was started off by Scott Morrison uh, with uh, Joe Biden and Boris Johnson, I think it was at the time, uh, and uh, is now being taken forward by the Labor government here. Uh, Labor's pretty much all in on this, but um, there are those who say that it has some, you know, some some very serious uh, security implications. Sam Rogovine, for example, uh, from the Lowy Institute has written very persuasively on this. He's called the arrangement the largest transfer of wealth ever made outside this country at $368 billion, a whopping subsidy to American naval shipyards and to troubled, chronically tardy British naval builder BAE Systems. And he's also called it um, a, a decision that renders Australia a military stronghold to help the US regional dominance while materially weakening, weakening our own security. That's pretty strong stuff. Uh, where do you stand on this, Bob? Yeah, I think it's going to be one of the, I think it's going to be the historic decision out of the Albanese government. Its grandiosity will take, I think, years to emerge. Um, and I'm just heartened that uh, the polls show a significant level of reservation about it, despite the overwhelming media support, the uncritical media support that's been gifted this decision. Um, it's the opportunity cost, the fact that we could have 20 conventional subs 
protecting Australia's northern waterways, northern waters, um, that we could have an additional number of uh, the world's best fighter planes, that we could be seeing that our missile and drone technology is the world's best. Uh, talk about a hedgehog strategy. Um, but there's going to be a massive opportunity cost. There will be a lot of defence investment foregone because of this colossal commitment to a single platform. Is it the death of the Australian Army? As Kim Beasley said in a recent discussion hosted by all people, by Aspie, I sat there as finance minister, said Kim Beasley, and I had to say for the, the, the most formidable and attractive proposals, there's simply no money. And for people from the Army, from the Air Force, people with a commitment to the strength of our sur surface vessels, the commitment to these submarines represents um, a, a huge, a huge loss. The fact that it's, we can only guess in a press release from the government uh, within the nearest hundred billion yeah. what the cost will be says it all. And, and I, I conclude with this observation. I had a discussion with Greg, Greg uh, Sheridan of The Australian. Now, it would have been just before Morris went for, for August, just before he announced it. I said, Greg, 55 billion for these French subs, that's an awful lot. He says, well, it looks like on the surface it is, Bob, but you've got to understand that 55 billion is over the life of the contract all the way to 2050. I, I think I bowed out of the exchange by saying, well, uh, even even so, but we press the fast play button, and within two years we've gone from fifty-five billion for the French to three hundred and sixty-eight billion for a, a design that doesn't exist. The British are only working on the design, and no one is confident that we're going to get them in the two thousand and forties. So this is the, the the grandiosity of this is what strikes me. And if anything's going to go wrong, it will go wrong with a submarine project. Exactly. It goes wrong with all defence contracts, it seems. And the bigger they are, the, the worse it goes wrong. And this is the mother of them all. Uh, this it's is the mother of them all. As, as, as uh, one diplomat said to me, it's got a million parts and it's more complex than a moonshot. Yeah. And the other thing that struck me about it when I heard it announced was, you know, there was a, there's a lot of announcement value in this. And this points to the kind of mismatch between the the actual delivery of this program and all of its complex stages through a number of decades and the short-term political cycle so i can see why governments would would announce it would 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 think this is a great thing but none of the politicians that are even sitting in the house now are going to be sitting in the house when these things start to either be delivered or go wrong or experience chronic delays or um or other catastrophic problems, not not least of which could be uh, changes of decisions by our international partners in relation to this, because we know this will be subject to further further domestic considerations down the track. It's interesting, uh, Bob, that uh, my intel suggests that there was a hookup of um, of, of Labor people last night, that is last night as we're recording this now, uh, ahead of the national conference, which Richard Miles, the Defence Minister, gave uh, a bit of an update on where things are at. I guess the, the government's very keen to manage the AUKUS debate. There's some friction expected at national conference. My understanding is that he didn't actually give any new information uh, other than suggesting that the the process of looking for a new place to deal with nuclear waste, um, given that the Kimber site in South Australia is now uh, uh, off the table, um, but that that process won't even begin to, I think, March of next year. So um, it strikes me that there's likely to be considerable heat around that. The other thing about it, of course, and you've made this point before and and and, and so has Sam Rogovin, that um, there are other aspects of this AUKUS deal, not not just the 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 um, submarines coming from the UK or indeed the Virginia class submarines that we're buying, the nuclear subs that we're buying from the US. Associated with this, there's B-52 bombers, nuclear capable bombers, which will be serviced at RAF Tyndall, um, aimed at presumably aimed at China's uh, nuclear arsenal, and Rogovin makes the point it's a very serious thing to 
sort of have a capacity for first strike against an opponent's nuclear weapons because it changes their mentality about what they do as a, as a first act as well. Um, there's the stationing of four nuclear US subs at a place called Submarine Rotational Force West over in Western Australia. Um, there's the potential uh, East Coast submarine headquarters that Australia is going to build, supposedly or most likely at, at Port Kembla, which uh, Rogovin says could be another nuclear target if China, for example, were looking to um, to take out the the threats that are most immediate for it uh, in in any conflict situation. Is there any sense that this one? I don't know whether you've got any views about this, but is there any sense that the Australian public understands the strategic and defence and security implications of these things? No, and I do detect from some people a sense of queasiness about what has suddenly emerged here. The B-52s, where was the public debate? Where was the public debate about the fact that they're going to be serviced in Tyndale and their mission will be to take out Chinese nuclear targets, thus ensuring that this base, that those planes will, will themselves be nuclear targets in the event of a war? Where was the debate about that? Mm. Where was the debate in Western Australia or elsewhere in Australia about the basing of UK and US nuclear subs in HMAS Sterling? Um, clearly nuclear targets because, or clearly targets, one should say, um, because their mission is going to be to destroy Chinese shipping in the Indian Ocean. The implication of this is that we have sacrificed sovereignty. This is an argument that Malcolm Turnbull used and uh, Gareth Evans has opened up, and Paul Keating, of course, has addressed. Sacrifice our sovereignty as we turn ourselves selves into, and I thought Rogovine's words were brilliant, into a huge base, a fortress designed to support America's bid to remain the prime power in Asia. It's a spectacular change in our position. All these nuclear bases around Australia, um, huge commitments and no debate, no, no candid discussion with the Australian people about the risks that these represent. I reckon there's been a colossal loss of any, any suggestion of, of Australian independence, for example, about whether we might like to make the decision in a war between the US and China, we would opt to be involved. It has been the consensus diplomatic position of Australia going back to the 50s under Menzies, spoken of by Alexander Downer, perhaps in a moment of indiscretion in 2004, that ANZUS, the obligations implied in ANZUS, would not apply to a war between China and the US triggered in the Taiwan Strait. Now, that seems to have been sacrificed. Why do you think the Labor Party has been so all in then? I mean, what's the logic here? Is it that they have access now when they're in office to uh, to more worrying strategic advice and intelligence on an ongoing basis? Is it a political calculus uh, associated with Labor not wanting to appear weak on national security, wanting to shore up its credentials there and appear strong and uh, suggest that it's the every bit the natural party of government that the coalition is, is, is sort of convinced people it is? Yeah, it's a gullible, in my view, it's a, a very gullible and simple-headed view that Labor must appear to be as hard on national security as the coalition, thus negating any advantage that might flow to the coalition when attention turns to international issues. It's foolish because the public, public opinion in Australia is nuanced and people grasp that, yes, um, China's getting bigger, um, China's getting stronger, we must respond to that, but also we should work at diplomatic solutions, and China will continue to be important to our economic strength that enables us to pay for big defence commitments um, like subs or jets. Um, and I, I think if Labor felt more confident about its capacity to lead and manage and massage debate, we wouldn't have this nagging fear that somehow 
because we're from the Labor Party, perhaps from the left-wing strand in the Labor Party. Someone's going to spring out of a bush and point at us and say, you can't be trusted on national security. The Australian public, Australian public, I think, has deep concerns about whether we're giving all our independence up and whether we're making ourselves a target, whether we're caught, above all this, deep concerns about whether we're caught up in uh, what a coalition-appointed public servant said was the, uh, the drums of war. The Australian people, not just those with Chinese backgrounds, but markedly with them, was terrified when Peter Dutton said in late 2021, it's inconceivable that Australia would not go to war with the United States against China. And to his credit, I suppose, neither he nor his shadow defence minister, Andrew Hastie, has repeated such a, such a rash comment in the time they've been in opposition. I think that says something, and I wish we'd, uh, our side of politics, the Labor side of politics, was uh, a bit more subtle in our understanding of where Australian opinion is. Well, you're right. It may it may be to their credit that they haven't been so bellicose since, but in a sense, the policy decisions, the policy machinery to which we have as a nation committed says it for them uh, because it has become more likely rather than less likely in the likely in the estimation of a number of people, Rogovine included, um, that as a result of these AUKUS arrangements and the complexities of them and the stationing of B-52s and submarines and, and anti-missile uh, missile stockpiles potentially, um, that uh, Australia would be uh, considered uh, an integral part of any such conflict and it would be very difficult not to be, you know, to stand aloof from it. Yeah, as I said, the decision to swing behind AUKUS and all that goes with AUKUS is the most consequential decision made by the Albanese government. It carries with it the hint that we've given up any capacity to make a decision on war over Taiwan. Um, now, that is a complete abandonment of the diplomatic stance that Australia had going back to Menzies and the 1950s. Um, it would deeply concern the Australian people and there hasn't been proper discussion about it with them. I'm, um, I'm, 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 I'm interested that you say it deeply concerns the Australian people because I, I don't actually see as much evidence of that as, as, as you're reading and uh, I wonder whether it isn't a bit like climate change. It's sort of seen as a concern but it's also abstract and some way off in the future and we, we have a habit of just not really getting animated about things that aren't right before us. We see this in even in this voice debate that's going on at the moment that people complain, oh, the government must be only talk should be only talking about cost of living crises, uh, dealing with that problem and, and and nothing sort of larger or abstract or or um, uh, perhaps you might say goes to uh, the, the spirit of the country can be dealt with. Yeah, people talk to me in the street. People certainly talk to me at Labor Party branch meetings where motions against AUKUS are simply carried unanimously. They are deeply concerned about what appears to be the trend line here, the automaticity, use mm. that clumsy word, mm. of, of walking into a war with China that is not in our national interest. I think we ought to be engaged in getting both sides, China and America, to cool the tensions, to take steps back, to have, to use Kevin Rudd's useful terminology, to have and to respect guardrails in this. One of the reasons, by the way, I was very keen on Rudd's appointment is that he's so literate in the history of cross-straits diplomacy. Americans will listen to him. He has, a, has an opportunity, has the credibility to help shift their thinking. But I think there is um, simmering below the surface um, a real anxiety, and don't forget, Labor owes its majority in the parliament to the reaction of Chinese background voters. Previously, a majority of them voted for the coalition, but last time they shifted, delivering Benelong, Reid to Labor, Chisholm to Labor, perhaps one or two of the seats in Perth to Labor or Independence, yes. Teal independence, and North Sydney, um, and even Kuyong, according to one assessment, two teals. Chinese background voters, you're saying, 
hang on, this anti-China rhetoric, what's it all about? Is there a plan for us to go to war? What does it mean? How does the country survive economically in such a situation? And certainly in the Aston by-election, Labor just ran ads directed at Mandarin speakers with an anti-Dutton message and picked up the seat in a remarkable result. Did you notice that uh, Julie Bishop, Chancellor of this university and former foreign minister during the uh, the, the last coalition period, um, actually advocated something similar to what you were just talking about, uh, Australia having a slightly more standing back a little bit in relation to the bilateral tensions between the US and, and China and perhaps using its good officers to counsel calm uh, and to try and keep dialogue flowing and so forth. Uh, what did you make of yeah, that? I thought that? I thought that was a very interesting contribution, a very worthwhile one, and more should have been made of it. And again, if you put to, in, in, in some sort of qualitative polling endeavour, you put to a gathering of Australians, would you agree with the former Foreign Minister, Julie Bishop, when she said, and you'd quote what she said, I think you'd find overwhelmingly conservative or labour aligned, softly committed conservative voters would say, yes, that's sensible to us. That's sensible to us. And and this doesn't reflect um, influence of the Communist Party of Australia and Australian public opinion. There's none of that. They have no influence, not even through Chinese language media. As far as I'm advised, I've seen no evidence presented by ASIA um, that would lead me to review that. Um, they are without soft power. China is without soft power. Um, this is simply Australians, Chinese background and others, determining that the war talk, such as came from Dutton, is not in our interest. It's not where we should be. We should, as Julie Bishop says, as Kevin Rudd says, be trying to find space to talk about alternatives to conflict. If you think of the, the lead up to World War One, and, and Henry Kissinger has said this. Henry Kissinger has said, that, that there's much in the US-China relationship now that reminds him of the descent into war that happened in the European summer of 1914. Terrifying. Yes, absolutely. Now, just in the few moments we've got left, I want to turn to the question of Julian Assange, which is very live at the moment as well. Uh, he's getting toward the end of uh, any legal uh, procedures that, that he can to forestall his, um, his uh, extradition to the United States uh, to face... Uh, all kinds of uh, untold penalty, the possibility of life in prison and so forth. Uh, this is for, crime, for, for, for for acts that were not a breach of Australian law and were not <laughs> conducted on US soil. Um, and we've just been talking about AUKUS and the extent to which Australia has uh, agreed to arrangements that uh, are very beneficial for the projection of, of, of US power in, in this part of the world in that in that contest with China. Why is it that the Australian government has extracted so little in terms of uh, material progress in, in dealing with this Assange question, which Obama did not take up and which uh, has been taken up since and which Biden seems still committed to? Obama did not take it up. His ambassador in Canberra, when I was minister, made it clear there was nothing underway in Washington um, uh, toward an extradition against Assange. This happened under Pompeo as either Secretary of State or Director of the CIA. It happened under Trump. Yeah. And uh, we should, should be absolutely un, unambiguous about saying, Mr. President, the Biden, Mr. President, the Australian people are united. This is one for Australia. If you're criticised by anyone in Congress, not sure who would, uh, two of the Republican presidential candidates have actually said Proceedings against Assange ought to be dropped. Um, but if there's anyone in Congress who criticises you, tell them you did it for a good ally for Australia. Now, I just I, I think we've performed pretty poorly on this. There is a point in this alliance relationship where you can say, no, 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 Mr. President, this is for Australia. There's no there's no uh, backsliding here. We're not going to beat a retreat at first. If you say no at first blush, we're against this. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me as completely. It's a it's a slam dunk, really. Uh, the as I say, the the legal basis of this is extremely dubious. Dubious. It's the uh, extrajudicial powers of the United States being used here, and uh, I find it astonishing that 
Australian leaders, uh, from Julia Gillard through the coalition and and, um, less so in the rhetorical sense now, but Australian leaders have um, been always quick to preface their comments with criticisms of Assange personally, which I I find sort of curious in in themselves, um, before then going on now at least in the case of the current government to saying they want this matter resolved. But it needs to be much more forcefully put and... um, uh, and, and again, I speak to my old profession, indeed your old profession of journalism, and uh, ask the question why it has been, why journalists themselves, why journalism as a craft or a profession has been so kind of mealy-mouthed about this over a long period of time as well, because the the penalty for the war crimes um, and indeed for the, the breach of security that Chelsea Manning uh, served time for, that's all come and gone. And... Uh, and and we still have this process going on uh, with the the pursuit of Assange. It's uh, it's um, it's punitive um, and extraordinary. You'd imagine this would be a twenty four hour controversy back in yeah. Washington. The people would respond to the argument: Listen, it's gone on long enough. He's done enough prison time, and we let Chelsea Manning go. And it was about the exposure of American war crimes in Iraq, but from an Australian perspective. The sort of war crimes that we're fully investigating, having been alleged in Afghanistan. Yeah. Uh, the Americans are just shrugging their shoulders and saying the, the shooting of unarmed civilians from an Apache helicopter by American troops, oh, that's just the fog of war. Well, it, it became harder for them to say that, given what Chelsea Manning um, gifted to Assange and what Assange published. And that's his offence. People have got grievances against Assange on other fronts, um, it's it's worth reminding that this is about the exposure of war crimes um, and nothing else. It's not about uh, uh, leaking Hillary's emails or uh, what the Swedes were, were seeking to interview him about. It's about the exposure of war crimes, the sort of war crimes that in another context we are pursuing. Indeed, couldn't agree more. Uh, Bob Carr, thanks for being with us on Democracy Sausage. Uh, it was t- taking too long to uh, have this conversation with you, and I've really enjoyed it. I think it's um, obviously we've we've been across some pretty controversial material. Um, I imagine there'll be some people who disagree with with uh, some of the assessments that you've made or that I've made. Uh, we accept that, of course. Um, that is uh, the nature of these issues, particularly whenever you talk about about the Israel-Palestine question. It is an incendiary topic. Uh, so um, I appreciate you coming on. My pleasure, Mark. Thank you very much. And that's Democracy Sausage for this week. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do so at our email address, which is democracysausage at anu.edu.au. Uh, and until next week, uh, bye for now. Bye for now.